The rite of confirmation is linked to the receiving of the Holy Spirit, or the strengthening of the Spirit. In the Roman tradition, the bishop wearing red vestments to symbolize the fire at Pentecost, and a mitre to symbolize the, uh, symbolize the flames that rested on the heads of the apostles, uh, will place his hands, usually on young adults who had been baptized as infants, in order to receive the Holy Spirit in a fuller sense. He pronounces a benediction over them, and he places oil on their forehead, declaring they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The baptismal grace conferred in the initiation rite into the church are then strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the rite of confirmation. The Roman Catholic Catechism says, It must be explained to the faithful that the reception of the sacrament of confirmation is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace. For by the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with the special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence, they are, as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread and defend the faith by word and deed. As an enthusiastic lover of my charismatic tradition, I have to say I like the idea behind this and would affirm it as a good thing, uh, generally. However, the biblical witness on this front is not tidy, and so I think the right of confirmation, while good and beneficial and having biblical precedent, uh, cannot dogmatically be said to be exclusively held by the tactile successors of the apostles. The successors of the apostles may have a real gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm not denying that possibility, but it is not exclusively held by them. It's worth noting that confirmation is practiced by bodies of believers like Lutherans, Methodists, and Evangelical Anglicans who don't uh, hold to the necessity of apostolic, apostolic tactile uh, succession. Scripture does teach uh, that the Holy Spirit was received by the laying on of hands by the apostles. In Acts 8, 14-17, we see that the Samaritans had received the word of God and were baptized but that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is perhaps the main proof text used to justify the rite of confirmation. We are told in this passage that Philip, a deacon, was preaching, performing miracles, and most likely baptizing. We're told the Samaritans were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We see later that Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. But we are specifically told that the Samaritans had not received the Holy Spirit. So the standard belief among Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Anglo-Catholics is that deacons like Philip are ordinary ministers able to administer uh, baptism. Um, and all Christians can administer baptism, but a deacon is an ordinary minister. Um, but he was unable to confer the Holy Spirit to the baptized in the same way, at least, uh, as the bishops, uh, or the uh, or as bishops in our time and, and they're uh, the apostles, because the bishops have the authority of the apostles since they're their tactile successors. Thus, baptism and confirmation are separate rites. I have to admit, this is a strong passage. It, it's, it's, it mirrors this passage to a T, really. 
Among the Pentecostal and Charismatic tradition, we see a similar separation of these two things. Water baptism is de-emphasized, and what they call spirit baptism, uh, which manifests in miracles and speaking in tongues, is emphasized. And both the, Rome, the sacramental tradition and the charismatic traditions are not without biblical precedent. We see it there in Acts. And I think it is one of the reasons that Pentecostals and Charismatics who start to study uh, our church history are drawn to some of these churches. They find that tradition appealing. And I have to admit that I have a warm spot in my heart uh, for uh, that kind of sacramental expression, I guess you could say. That distinction is made already in the tradition that I'm coming from. The emphasis is different and the manifestation of it is different, but it's both there trying to make sense of it from scripture and then practicing it in different ways. But in other passages, we have the reception of the Holy Spirit at the same time as water baptism. Peter says in Acts 2, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So here Peter connects repentance, baptism, the remission of sins, and the reception of the Holy Spirit into one moment. This is certainly a strong text for things like baptismal regeneration um, and also the graces and promises attendant in baptism extending to the children of the baptized as well. And we see the reception of the Spirit. Now the Roman, Eastern, and Anglo-Catholic can easily say, well, the men who were baptized received their baptism directly from the apostles. So baptismal grace and confirmation were both present. And this is a good point. Uh, it, it could hold up. However, uh, this is more in line with the Eastern tradition, which practices baptism and, and confirmation together. Um, instead of confirmation in the East, it's referred to as chrismation in reference to the oil that's used. Uh, for the East, baptism is our participation in Easter. Confirmation or chrismation is our participation in Pentecost. And I would heartily affirm this. I think it's a great way to describe it. And this is ritually enacted with the anointing of oil on the newly baptized, which certainly also has biblical precedent. The Holy Spirit, oil, and anointing are all connected in Scripture, um, though not explicitly ritually enacted in the New Testament uh, with the reception of the Holy Spirit. We do see it in James with the uh, application to those who are sick and the elders pray for. Instead of oil being the mark of the Holy Spirit, what we see in the New Testament is that the reception of the Holy Spirit is usually marked with tongue speaking, prophecy, and other signs and wonders. Yet, we don't see this regularly at baptisms, confirmations, or chrismations. We don't see uh, actual fire hanging over the head of the bishop, or we don't see uh, the person speaking in tongues all the time. So this lends some credibility to both the cessationist and charismatics. The, the cessationist rightly acknowledges that extraordinary miracles are not always present in baptism or confirmation. They're regularly not. But charismatics and Pentecostals desire and expect and have genuinely experienced these things from the Holy Spirit. And speaking anecdotally, these things still do occur. I have experienced them, though I didn't experience them in baptism. 
So the Western Rite of Confirmation and the Eastern Rite of Chrismation as a sacramental expression of the Holy Spirit and uh, a continuing ancient practice, again, is one reason why Pentecostals and Charismatics find themselves drawn to these traditions. Acts 19 also shows us an example of baptism and reception of the Holy Spirit from uh, the apostles. The disciples at Ephesus had only received the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance, which, which served as, as this preliminary baptism to Christ's baptism. We're told, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men uh, were about twelve in all. So passing by this quickly, one could say, see, the reception of the Holy Spirit came from an apostle. However, I think Paul's question actually indicates they could have received the Holy Spirit apart from the apostles, that the reception of the Holy Spirit was possible at the moment of belief. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why would he ask that if he didn't think it was a possibility? Almost as if uh, it was strange that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they believed. So this throws uh, somewhat of a metal rod into basically everyone's systematic theology from Calvinist to Romanist. And this passage also, to my mind, supports the Eastern tradition more than the Western because water baptism and the reception of the Spirit are enacted together. However, it also gives support to the Pentecostal and charismatic expectation that Christians can prophesy and speak in tongues when they receive this, the Holy Spirit, and this is a mark of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Pentecostal and Charismatic tradition generally don't have much of an appreciation uh, for the sacraments, but they have enthusiastic appreciation and expectation of direct, unmediated to an extent, manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And as a tradition, they've basically developed tunnel vision on this particular experience of the Holy Spirit, uh, just as any tradition will develop tunnel vision on whatever particular strength they've encountered and cherish. But this expectation of unmediated, we might say non-sacramental, Holy Spirit reception or application is in Scripture. We do see it. We see it in Acts 10. While Peter was speaking to the Gentiles of Cornelius' house, the Gentiles all received the Holy Spirit directly, and then they were baptized. So the reception of the Holy Spirit preceded the laying on of hands and water baptism. Acts 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit f fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So here we have an example of the Holy Spirit being poured out directly to a group of believers, apart from the sacramental administration of the apostles, apart from their laying on of hands. However, once they received the Holy Spirit, they were baptized by an apostle. If we were to admit some kind of mediatorial instrument at play here, 
we would say that it was the preaching of the gospel. Peter is preaching the gospel to the household, and he's in the middle of his sermon when the Holy Spirit descends on the hearers. Uh, we might say the Spirit used the sacrament of the preached word to descend on the hearers. This is much more of a charismatic or evangelical emphasis. Uh, for the evangelical, the word is powerful and is used by the Holy Spirit. For the charismatic, the Holy Spirit is directly encountered in the context of the word. Of note is that Peter remarks that the reception of the Spirit isn't a second-rate reception, but that they received it just as the apostles had. Also of note is that the sign of the Holy Spirit was speaking with tongues and magnifying God. Now, I affirm and practice speaking in tongues in what might be called the Corinthian mode. I also affirm the Jerusalem mode is real and for today. Uh, I don't know which mode is at play here. There isn't enough to know one way or the other. But uh, it's worth noting that I think cessationists conflate these things. They don't give, uh, I think, reasonable attention to what Paul is explicating in Corinthians what happened in Corinth, and then what happens at Pentecost and Acts. <clears throat> One of the most obvious is that the interpreter, an interpreter is needed in Corinth where it wasn't needed in Acts. Uh, it wasn't needed at Pentecost. The tongues were understood by the hearers of the respective foreign nations. So the gift of tongues is a mark of the Holy Spirit, but it is also manifest in at least two different ways in Scripture. I should say that uh, I don't believe speaking in tongues is a necessary mark of reception of the Holy Spirit. I grew up in uh, charismatic uh, circles, and I never once encountered anyone who believed or taught this. There are different, different gifts given to the people of God. They vary. They are all gifts of the Spirit, and they all ought to be used for the edification of the church. So I don't, I don't preach or teach in a necessity for speaking in tongues. Um, though I would encourage it just like I would all the gifts. This direct conferral of the Holy Spirit is seen all over the place in the Old Testament. Um, but one helpful episode can be found in the time, and I don't, I don't mean this, I don't mean uh, one that involves speaking in tongues, but the filling of the Holy Spirit, the application of the Holy Spirit, we see all over the place. Um, and in Numbers 11, in the time of Moses, we read this. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. In some ways, this is kind of the same idea of apostolic succession. The spirit that is on Moses, the Holy Spirit is being then placed on to the elders. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the, prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses... Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? 
Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, he and the elders of Israel. So there's a lot going on in this passage, particularly in its larger context, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but I bring it up to simply show that the spirit was given to the elders apart from the laying on of hands, um, particularly with Eldad and Medad. Cyril of Jerusalem recognizes this point too in his catechetical lectures. He says, Eldad and Medad were not present, therefore, that it might be shown that it was not Moses who bestowed the gift, but the spirit who wrought. Eldad and Medad, who, th who though called, had not as yet presented themselves, did also prophesy. So I believe that this is a clear anticipation of the pouring out of the Spirit on the Gentiles at Pentecost in Acts, as there are 70 elders here, who 70 signifies the nations. You have the 70 nations that descend from Noah in Genesis 10, and then uh, you have the 70 apostles that are sent by Jesus, and this is... Uh, I think, ultimately, uh, anticipation of Pentecost. I also find it hilarious that there was a young man complaining about the prophecy that was occurring. We had cessationists back then, too. My Lord, forbid them. God has already given us the law. The law is sufficient. It's all we need, right? Um, and Moses, that's true, but we have the Spirit. The Spirit comes. And Mo Moses doesn't say, yeah, you're right. We have the word... We have the word of God already. We don't need these spirit-filled prophets denying the sufficiency of the words of God. Uh, that's not what Moses says. He, he does not give a cessationist answer here. He says exactly the opposite. He gives a very charismatic answer. He says, Mo Moses, uh, Moses says, Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that he would put his spirit on them. And this is exactly what happens at Pentecost and all the way down to the present. The Lord puts his spirit on all Christians. Sometimes it comes through the laying on of hands. Sometimes it comes directly. The spirit is pleased to use men, but he will not be caged by them. In Acts 9, Ananias is sent to lay his hands on Paul so that he may receive his sight, receive the spirit, and be baptized. Ananias was not an apostle. Um, though he is a sent one, and some traditions do see him as one of the 70 that are sent out by Jesus in Luke 10. Hippolytus of Rome, writing in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, says Ananias was a bishop of Damascus. But uh, none of that is relayed to us in the text of Scripture. We are simply told he is a disciple in Damascus, and he is sent by the Lord supernaturally through a vision to bestow the Holy Spirit on Paul who also received a vision of Ananias laying his hands on him to receive his sight. Acts 9, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there, there fell uh, from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So here we have, we, it's simply a disciple in Damascus who imparted the Holy Spirit to Paul, an apostle, through the laying on of his hands. Now, <clears throat> if uh, Hippolytus is correct, I suppose there isn't a problem here for Rome or the East or Anglo-Catholic traditions. Paul simply received his baptism and confirmation at the same moment by an apostle and bishop. 
but Luke doesn't think it's important enough to mention that Ananias is a bishop or an apostle, if indeed he was, which he, he may have been. Luke simply refers to him as a disciple. Paul describes him as a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. <laughs> That's in Acts 22. Also of interest, uh, contrary to Baptist beliefs, Paul's baptism is made in the privacy of a home. It wasn't done as a public profession of his faith. Also in favor of the charismatic and Pentecostal tradition, we have the miraculous involved here as well. The reception of sight through the laying on of hands, which of course, this healing aspect with the laying on of hands is seen everywhere with Jesus and, and Paul, um, where they lay their hands on other people and they're healed. Uh, the scriptures show us that uh, the laying on of hands is associated with these things and, and also with blessings and especially blessing of children and infants, um, as we see with Christ and also Jacob in the Old Testament. So I think there is a sense in which Christ continues to lay his hands on his people after his ascension uh, in, the, in the sense that he heals people uh, physically and spiritually, uh, and he uses the church to do that. The church, which is his body, uh, becomes his hands. The church is composed of men who are Christ's body, and they become his hands. They lay their hands on people, and they receive the Spirit, and they're healed, and all, all these kinds of things. Uh, we see this with the apostles who appointed ministers and bishops, who then appoint other ministers and elders. Uh, there is this cascading effect. There is something to this. Christ gave his Holy Spirit to the apostles. The apostles gave the Holy Spirit to the baptized with the laying on of their hands. Christ healed and blessed with the laying on of hands. The apostles healed and blessed with the laying on of theirs. This wasn't the exclusive way healings and Holy Spirit reception occurred. Uh, I, at one point, we see that the shadow of Peter healed somebody or, or something like this. But the laying on of hands is one way, and we might even say it's the regular way that it occurred. Paul does say that this is an elementary principle in the same category as repentance and baptism and resurrection from the dead and judgment. So I think we can say that this is a regular and foundational thing in the church. And the way that it manifests in Rome in the East, I think, is fine and great. And, and perhaps it is uh, the, the regular way of doing it. And, and, and if there is some legitimacy there, uh, they'll be held accountable for driving the faithful away <laughs> who aren't in communion with them because they are unfaithful. <clears throat> However, this sacramental cascading effect is sometimes minimized by the apostles themselves. Paul says to the Galatians, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Right? He, em he emphasized the reception of the spirit by hearing with faith. That's a very evangelical emphasis, right? The faith. He doesn't say, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the laying on of my hands? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by confirmation? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by chrismation? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law uh, or by baptism? He doesn't say that. He says, by the hearing of faith. Peter says, you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God. It's 1 Peter 1. 
So he emphasizes obedience to the truth through the Spirit and being born again through the Word of God. Again, very evangelical sounding. He's emphasizing obedience. He's emphasizing uh, the Word of God uh, being the instrument by which they were born again. In his letter to the Christians at Corinth, Paul downplays the significance of who administered their baptisms. It's a kind of minimalization of sacramental reception. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul is emphasizing the evangelical nature of his apostleship, and that is preaching the word of God. His is a ministry of the word. It's very evangelical. And evangelicals are right for emphasizing it. That's a treasure. It's a glory of evangelicalism. And when I use the term evangelical, I mean everything from Lutherans being called evangelicals and emphasizing the word and faith all the way down to the present of non-denominational churches doing the same and carrying on that same Lutheran evangelical tradition of the word and faith. Finally, Jesus connects the spirit to his words. In John 6, he says, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. And they are life. And when he's tempted by Satan, Jesus says something similar by quoting Deuteronomy 8. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the words of God are the Spirit of God. And obedience to the Word, keeping the Word, abiding by the Word, is how we receive and retain the Holy Spirit. This is true. This is the evangelical emphasis. And so, if we take the biblical witness... We take all these things together, we see that all three streams of the Christian church converge. They all, these three streams all come out of, of the scriptures and they've manifested in three major uh, traditions in the church, that being the sacramental, the evangelical, and the Pentecostal. Uh, scripture teaches a sacramental nature of the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit reception through the laying on of hands and baptism. Scripture teaches a charismatic nature of the Holy Spirit reception through unmediated conferral. Scripture teaches an evangelical nature of the Holy Spirit through hearing the word through faith. All three of these together are testified to. All three of these things are true, and they ought to be embodied as one. There are three major traditions in the church when it comes to this, but there is only one church. And that is very fitting, as it is very Trinitarian. <laughs>